Hello, hello. Welcome to Ami Tuckered Out. I am your host, Ami Tucker Ravel, and this is part two of South Asians voting in the U.S. Today, I get to talk to one of the organizers of South Asians Vote 2020, Mr. Samid Guha, who also happens to be a good friend of mine. Samid is a highly respected courtroom advocate and negotiator with decades of experience in government and private practice. He has tried numerous criminal and civil cases and has briefed and argued several appeals before the Second Circuit. His resume includes assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, a partner at two private law firms, and he is currently a founding partner at Perry Guha LLP. He has spoken on numerous panels regarding white-collar defense, insider trading, and corporate investigations. He has a long history of engagement on pro bono efforts and serves on the board of directors of South Asian Youth Action and on the executive steering committee of the South Asian Bar Association of New York. He also happens to be a college athlete and from what I can remember, I think a pretty decent dancer. I hope you guys enjoy the interview. But before we start, here's a word from my friend Josh, who has so graciously donated his cameo earnings towards the Biden-Harris campaign. Take it away, Josh. You're listening to Tuckered Out with Ami. This is Josh Radner from How I Met Your Mother and other TV shows and other things. (laughs) I don't know, maybe you can use something like that. all this stuff on you last night. And I know you don't like hearing about yourself. So let me just talk for a second. But I didn't realize that you were kind of a badass. I was like, what? I didn't know he what he did this. And so at the beginning of the episodes, I put together an official introduction. And your introduction started off as a page last night. I was like, when did you do all this? Did it include the stupid stuff? No, it was all the like the stuff that I never knew because we were always bar hopping. And I was like, huh? I was like, who is this guy? So South Asians Vote is a nonpartisan movement to increase voter turnout and civic engagement, right? So tell me about the genesis of the organization. How did you guys come together? How, yeah, how did it start? Very organically. What happened was when you get to a certain age, there are a group of people who you are politically engaged with. And, and in this moment in time, whether it's via text message or Zoom calls, you know, people are very focused on the politics of the moment and the elections. And full disclosure, I would say the majority of the four or five of us who are involved in this are, I think, are probably registered Democrats, although two are independents. And I'd like to think collectively we don't consider ourselves as partisan politically, although we may have leanings depending on the issue. After the George Floyd murder, On one hand, you know, kind of the reminder of some of the failings in our politics these days. It was also kind of inspirational to see so many people out in the street and politically engaged on issues that are not new, but really kind of had a new resonance for folks. So a bunch of us just got on a Zoom call to talk about the upcoming election and what we could do in terms of voter turnout. So that's where it started. It literally started over a Zoom call with about eight or 10 folks 
who are similarly minded. As one of my friends described, joked around, he was like, this is the least diverse phone call that you could possibly, Zoom call that you could assemble because it was effectively eight to 10 South Asian guys between the ages of 46 and 53, all with bad haircuts because of the pandemic and because and they're Indian guys, all drinking some version of Johnny Walker. All wearing the same outfit too. All wearing the same outfit. But we were we were talking about how we could try to be impactful on the premise that the election was important and at a minimum, nobody wanted to feel like we didn't do our part, whatever the outcome may be. And that spawned one of the conversations was anecdotally what we had all observed is that older generation of South Asian, mostly that generation who immigrated like my parents did in at the earliest, the late 50s, but the 50s, 60s, many of us noted that that group who came to this country, their politics are are different than kind of our generation, me being almost 50 and, and going down. Again, it, it's always dangerous to try to treat any community like or, or demographic like a monolith. But I think what we observed is in that older generation of family and friends, there were more people who tended to vote Republican, did not identify as being a minority for a number of sociological reasons, and many of whom voted for Trump in 16, again, for a number of sociological reasons, including potentially, in 16, potentially the anti-Muslim tone of his campaign, which, you know, that's just a reality of our community. Again, not as a monolith, but it's, it's a strain we have to be honest about. And then over the last four years, Trump's Engagement with Modi, I think, is also kind of resonated, especially with that older generation. So we tried to figure out what we might be able to do to kind of engage with that community. We spent about a month and a half doing some fairly rigorous data analysis uh, just to understand how, you know, was this worth spending our energy on? And it's actually, it's striking. Two things are striking. It, It was very difficult to get data about South Asian participation in campaigns that is disaggregated from the broader Asian American like census category. And obviously those are such different communities that the the aggregated data was not as helpful. And we were trying to look for the really disaggregated data, but it's out there. And, And with some digging, we got it. And I know that, and by the way, as a side note, the South Asian community in this election has been so vibrant and active. We're far from the only ones doing anything. And people, the campaigns have been pretty incredibly attuned to that. But the data really was interesting because you realize if you look at the trend lines, especially in the swing states, South Asian communities, again, now we're talking across age groups, but also firmly capturing that older age group. The income levels are very high relative to other minority groups. The growth and the naturalization for the older ones, those numbers are really high. They're especially high in the states that matter, like Michigan. Pennsylvania is a huge, you know, there's a huge significant South Asian population. Texas and Georgia are two of the biggest growing South Asian communities in the country. I know that we found data that gave us access in the seven swing states I thought it was 500,000 registered voters, but the number is higher than that. That The number is higher than that. And again, just for the purposes of completeness, under the umbrella of South Asian, the lion's share of those folks are Indian. There's a significant Bangladeshi population in some states, and you have a Pakistani population that's 
probably third in line. And the Sri Lankan population and what I'll call the other unfairly so, but um, is, is probably doesn't move the needle as much. But take Pennsylvania, for example, when we broke down by county, there are a handful of the top five counties, five to seven counties in the 16 election that voted for Obama in 08 and 12, but then voted voted for Trump in 16. And in those counties, you have meaningful South Asian populations within the margin of error. So that's what kind of prompted us to identify what we thought was worth was an issue that was worth spending our time. And then I guess the next phase was really trying to figure out what issues resonated with a meaningful portion of that group and then how to reach them. The how to reach them point was pretty interesting because especially that older demographic that we were looking at, unlike Ami Tucker, they're not on Instagram or on all the cool new social media platforms. But what we were hearing anecdotally more than anything else is they're on all these WhatsApp chains that frankly, a lot of us are on because everybody's got the crazy uncle who includes them on the WhatsApp chain that has like 60 people on it and all sorts of crazy things come across your transom. And you're like, why am I on this chain? But that is a real source of news in that community as are the South Asian specific cable networks where they watch their TV on a Saturday night. So what we did was two things is we, we figured on one hand, if we can produce some content that is specifically engages them on the issues they care about, which for some segment is really India focused, even though they're here and then try to get to them through two networks, one through putting it through their cable commercial feed and two to try to get in terms of free media, try to get whatever we produce to go viral onto email and WhatsApp chains and, and the regular social media too, just to get it to as many people as possible. The cable piece of it was actually really easy because it's really cheap. Like it's amazing, astonishingly cheap to get onto those cable stations. So the two distribution networks would, that we identified are those cable networks. And again, in terms of being affordable too, because you can, you can get a lot of bang for your buck. And those WhatsApp chains is a way to communicate with the older generation. So that's what we did. And, you know, we, we went and we, you know, I mean, part of the thing is you get to a certain age and you, if you are stupid in bars with people and hang out and make friends across industries, you got to figure out when you're going to, going to lean on those relationships to do something that you think is meaningful. So I think all of us committed to do just that. And we had a really good friend who agreed who won an Emmy award years ago, who agreed to produce the videos. Um, you know, we each shipped in some funds because we didn't want to be beholden to a campaign or, and, and neither, none of us like fundraising, but we had one friend who took the lead on producing the videos. Like I wrote the ads with, with one of our friends, we, we wrote them and he kind of made them go from dumb guys sitting on a couch, writing ads to a guy who knows what he's doing. And then another friend of ours who's an actor did the voiceovers and then we bought the ad space and we put them on the networks. And then we just kind of relied on friends and family to distribute them. So when I was joking around earlier about all those WhatsApp chains that you're dying to get off as we get off and like, please don't email me any of your crazy stuff anymore. Those all suddenly became valuable because I think all of like the old uncles that are indiscriminate about who they put on their chains as a result, putting content onto their chains is really easy. 
Well, I agree. I mean, I sent, I know you guys had sent at least two videos, right? We've done two videos. The third one will come out just this weekend, which is testimonial based from some older people who have voted. Well, irrespective of how they voted before, have had a an advert had a very strong reaction to what Trump has actually done and are have been gracious and wanting to speak directly to kind of their peers. Yeah. So I sent both of those to my parents and their group, which is, you know, about 2030. And from there, it just it was passed along. It was that easy. And I think the one the two that you guys have out are the what has Trump done for India? which I think really resonated, especially with my, my parents' reaction to it. And then the first one was kind of an easy way to help out with the 2020 elections with Jay Sean. That's right. Because part of the way we conceptualized it is, on one hand, we, you know, we had a message that we were hoping to spark some thinking from the older generation. But we also just wanted, and I think this, you know, kind of in a broader civic sense, one of the dangers of the last four years in particular is nobody talks to each other anymore about politics other than who you want to talk to. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. But one of our hopes were if we could was that if we could break through that a little bit, because the cross-generational conversation on politics within our community is really important. So the first ad was intended in part to get that was actually in a strange way aimed at, at a younger demographic that might already be engaged. But then that paired with the second one, we were hoping, in addition to direct outreach, it would spark conversations because the two groups are focusing on, again, with the caveat that these are all, they're not monoliths, but generally speaking, we found that older community, understandably, as you, I guess as you get older and start thinking more about your life, they're really focused on what's happening in India and the interaction between Trump and India, whereas that younger generation, I would put myself in this group, the concerns are more here and now and they will and what what this will mean long term for this country. So there is a natural disconnect that I think it's a very healthy conversation to try to bridge that disconnect. Well, I think the conversations are happening this election. And, and my only example is my parents and their friends in Texas. But they are the ones that went to that Modi Trump rally. Right. And when my parents came back from it with their friends, they were so impressed. And I was like, all right, it's time to start talking to you guys about this. And yeah, I think that I think that's right, too. And I, I also the Trump Modi connection uh, to me is is fairly interesting because on one hand, at the surface, it looks like Trump is, has really sought to foster a partnership with Modi and by extension, India, that regardless of how you feel about Modi, it feels as though he the administration was paying attention to India, but it doesn't take a lot of research to realize that didn't really happen. Tongue in cheek, we were saying in that second ad that Trump loves a good rally, but it's actually more than tongue in cheek because outside of the rally in Houston and then what he did on his trip to India, not only did India not see anything tangible out of it, but he eliminated a trade preference for India for no really good reason. India should have been, should have benefited from the Trans-Pacific Partnership to help contain China from an economic perspective. And the Trump administration's decision to, to get out of it, I think it was day one of his administration. So there's no, I mean, I, I find it hard to believe Trump could even tell you the first thing about the TPP, but that should have benefited India. And for all the anti-China rhetoric, you know, Trump is pretty open in saying, 
I still want to reach deals with China and I see them as a partner longer term economically. And that's these are all things that I think if you're really scrutinizing beyond the rallies, what he's doing for India, it's not very promising. Right. It's kind of all seems like a lot of show. Well, it's just it's not a real. And again, this is it's going to sound partisan, but it's more a commentary of Trump and this administration than the Republican Party as a whole. There's a real competence question that I think should should worry everybody. I think whatever anyone feels about Biden or frankly, so I'll, I'll push the needle a little bit, even even another Republican candidate who is true to Republican conservative principles and put the country first. Right. You should have greater faith that they're going to hire serious people to look at the issues and do things in a disciplined, thoughtful, intelligent way, as opposed to the scattershot governed by tweet experience we've had for the last four years. I think that confidence question alone is, to me, makes this election a fairly easy choice. And then, listen, here's here's where it all comes full circle. When you realize the power of the South Asian community in terms of the position we're achieving in society right now, both economically and numerically, the idea of having an administration that's thoughtful and listens, then the job is on us to persuade and kind of make sure that we advance the issues we care about and we have a voice at the table, which I, I, I think we had during the Obama administration. I think we would have in a normal Republican administration, too. So that's where this is, to my mind, a little bit less partisan and more a, re- a resumption of normal functioning of government that we would benefit from. Right. Because a lot of these organizations that I've talked to you are partisan. So it's it is refreshing that you guys are trying that, that you guys aren't, you know, and that it is a matter of. Competence. It's a matter of the actual person. Right. And that's the look, because I do think that's important. I think it's because, again, I think we should all be pushing back on this idea that groups are, you know, that any meaningful or group of people is homogenous in their views. It's going to depend on the issue. It's going to depend on people's background. And then if you have a robust discussion, hopefully you get to the right answer. Right. And just, I mean, South Asians alone are so diverse. There's so many different backgrounds. There's so many different experiences. We call we come from everywhere. So, I mean, it's just, like you said, it's not monolithic. It's hard to put everyone in one group. And I think there's one, you know, one big, at least, and this is again, anecdotal as opposed to database, but how South Asians view themselves in the broader context of being a minority in the United States varies wildly. You can make some generalizations based on generation and experience and income levels, but even those are dangerous, but it's, it's something that warrants some careful consideration and and more importantly, engagement than just assuming one thing or the other. Right. So what has the feedback been so far? I follow you guys on Instagram and you guys have fantastic posts and and updates. How has it been going? So you laugh at this. I'm not on Instagram, so I have no idea how we're doing on Instagram. Um, I'll, I'll let you know. I'll take a picture of it and send it to you via like snail mail. There's another avenue of distribution that I haven't talked about. Is we figured out through one of our friends is involved with a political electoral like get out the vote group. And we got access to lawful email addresses and contact information for registered South Asian voters in the swing states. So we were able to reach them directly in a way that, frankly, could, you know, may dwarf the efforts that we're making to have go viral. 
Um, the feedback has been great. I mean, and I think it kind of tracks what you said on the first commercial, which with Jay Sean, which was aimed at a little bit of a younger demographic. Uh, there was a lot of, hey, this is really great. This is really cool. I love Jay Sean's music. When are we going to go out and get drinks? On the second one, there was a lot which was focused on what Trump has done for India. There was a lot more feedback of this ad seems more substantive and it really is going to spark a conversation because I can send it to people who haven't thought about it in this level of depth. Right, right. What have your parents said? My, my parents, I think, are amused. They're they're like, don't you have a job? And by the way, you pay <laughs> enough time to your children? And, and your wife is like, hello. <laughs> uh, no, I have to say, like like with most things, my wife has been amazingly supportive. I think, especially in 16, I think what one concern we had, in addition to the competence question, like the anti-Muslim rhetoric of the Trump campaign, at my most selfish level, so putting aside views I have on, on the rhetoric substantively, there was this fear that, you know, when you unleash those sentiments, nobody is going to take any time to figure out if our kids are Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, or whatever. They look brown, and if you build that up, there's a danger of a backlash. So it was one of the first times in my experience in this country where I felt felt like a broader safety concern. And I think that was a little bit, if I could be a little critical, I think the South Asian community that la- that latched on to that anti-Muslim rhetoric, it was a little short-sighted. I, I spoke to Very short-sighted. a really, really close friend of our families. I mean, he's like a second father to me who I know voted for Trump. And even though he won't, I, I said to him, you know, I hope it's all worth it because if your grandkids, if someone turns on your grandkids or even thinks about them differently because of all of this, is your tax break really worth it? And that is, I, to me, it kind of identifies the difference between, I think that generation doesn't connect the two. Although if you're thinking about your longer term life in this country, you have to connect the two. Right. I'll, I will tell you, for the first time, when we moved to Arkansas in 18, I was nervous. I never thought I would be. But the first thing I thought was, are we going to be safe? I, listen, I, I, I'm sure you're having the same conversations that I think everybody's having now. It's shocking to me the number of my friends who are talking about buying guns. We live on a block. We're, we're in upstate New York, and it is rural slash country. So we live next to a working farm and the people, you know, have been great community wise, but there are a lot of Trump pen signs. There's a QAnon flag down the block. And we had joked around because I'd said, you know, maybe I'll put, we'll put a Biden Harris sign, a Black Lives Matter sign and a, I support law enforcement because I was a prosecutor. I, I'm not viscerally opposed to law enforcement. And I think that's a false dichotomy. And we laughed about it. And then there was a moment of like, well, yeah, I don't, really want someone to throw a brick through our house or anything like that. And, you know, hopefully after this election, things will return to a less fevered pitch, but it's in the moment it's concerning. Yeah. It's just the idea that we don't feel like we belong to this country or is people are starting to feel like that is concerning, you know, and it feels like the first time in our lifetimes that we have felt this way. We've been talking a lot about like, how can, what is it about Trump that is so attractive to some people? And, and and I think the thing that worries me the most is I think his complete and utter refusal to apologize for anything. And that's that's his brand, right? His brand is 
well, I don't think he would call his brand untruthfulness, but that is <laughs> that is his brand. But he really prides himself on openly is I don't say sorry and I don't admit defeat and I don't ever admit I'm wrong. And that's exactly the wrong message because part of the way you govern is hopefully is kind of taking in information from all sorts of groups and all sorts of inputs and making an accurate assessment, not just an assessment that validates your initial reaction. Well, that's a definition of a leader. I mean, Trump was a great celebrity, right? Like he was fantastic, but as a leader, yeah, a little, little, little bit shaky there. But I will say this, the one other thing, last thing about South Asia, it is fascinating because we were just joking around about it today. Like it happened so organically. None of us are, this isn't what any of us do for a living. And there was this moment of like, wow, we have a week to go and then this is over. And it's not like this has any other, this was in the moment, something we want to do for this election. That being said, I do think we're tr- we're going to try to, and I've been trying to kind of gather all of our learning from this so that there's so many amazing groups that are do that will continue the work going forward. So at least if we can hand off what we've learned and then, you know, they can either discard it or if there are pieces they can use, that would be great. That way at least it has some life beyond this. And just to make sure that no one has the wrong impression, the three or four of my friends who worked on this, those guys did all the heavy labor. I just like look for look for funny pictures on Google late at night and put them into our PowerPoint. Oh yeah, no, I wasn't going to give you like any credit. Good. So, it, it was just you're the only one I could get hold of, and so you know. But, I, but I'm very good at finding funny pictures on, on uh, the internet. This is why we go bar hopping. <laughs> That's what you're for. Okay, so I usually do. I know we have a few minutes, so I usually do a kind of lightning round for you. It's going to be political thoughts and. Obviously, each comment or question I have, we can probably talk about for hours, but kind of first thing on your mind. So yesterday, I guess it was yesterday, Supreme Court seat was filled. Amy Coney Barrett, how much do we have to worry? Everybody should be worried about the process because because first and foremost, the idea that it wasn't a real process is more than disconcerting. And, and the Somehow the message, it didn't translate, although it probably wouldn't have mattered because of the vote question, but Merrick Garland should be on the bench. So that from a process standpoint, um, it's really problematic to say the very least. And this is from a substantive perspective, she's qualified to be on the bench. She's qualified academically. She seems qualified temperamentally. It's a shame that the the confirmation proceedings have have and this goes before her, have morphed into this place where where the nominees are really just trying not to answer any questions. So who do you really know? But I think there is worry if you're about the conservative bent of the bench now, six, three, although it's been, you know, there have been those moments of worry historically. It doesn't always turn out that way. So that gives you a ray of optimism. The other thing is if if you do get a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House and a Democratic White House, you can counter the strict constructionalist approach by passing legislation and maybe pushing back to the legislature, the federal legislatures. If you get them motivated to pass laws that address the concerns raised by conservative Supreme Court opinions, that's your avenue out. If you don't like the um, Citizens United, pass federal legislation, and then you take that out of the Supreme Court's hands. So that you know, there's a chance that that's a really, really healthy byproduct of all of this. 
This is why we got to vote. So I remember in 08 when you, me, Ravi, our homie that we love to make fun of, when we would watch the debates in, in, in the bars in New York City. What have your thoughts been about the debates this year? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which is a whole other podcast, I know, but just, you know, in a few sentences. I don't think Biden should have done the third debate. And I actually think he probably should have walked off the stage in the first debate because I think you're actually normalizing what Trump does by engaging in a debate with him. I, I don't see how you can debate somebody who is completely untethered to the truth. And if you're having a debate about the different issues and the parties and the candidates, different views on the issues, that's one thing. Luckily, Trump was so unhinged in the first one that it wasn't normalized and everyone saw it for what it was. But in the second one, it normalized a little bit. And I thought the vice presidential debate was more interesting in that regard. It was more of a conventional debate. And you saw a real interesting exploration of ideas, but it still normalized the Trump administration in a way that I thought was unfortunate. I felt like I went through the whole cycle gamut of emotions. When Chris Wallace asked Trump the question about, will you condemn white nationalists? My immediate thought was like, come on, this is really a question. Like you're giving him a layup to just say no, and then we'll move on. And then I think I dropped my cocktail when he couldn't get it right and get the right answer, which anybody should get right, let alone the advocacy that he did. And that worried me because now not only are you normalizing his behavior, but you're actually giving him a platform to send a message out there to, to do things that are undemocratic. And I thought he did the same thing with the QAnon question in the second debate. Like you're letting him, you're giving him a platform to really do something that that I think is dangerous to our democracy. Again, whatever your politics are. Yeah, it's just shedding so, more light to it. So, so you know, I, but I do hope that this is a function of this election. And when we get back to 2020, there will be a path of rebuilding this country and, and making these meaningful exercises again. And by the way, we did a whole podcast without talking about the fact that Kamala's mom might be the biggest badass of all of us. Well, that was a blast uh, catching up with my old friend, Samith. And uh, that sums it up for my South Asians and voting in the U.S. series. You can follow South Asians Vote 2020 on Instagram. And as always, you can follow me at Ami Tucker It Out. And everyone, I know it's going to be a stressful week. November 3rd is here. So brace yourselves. Grab that cup of chai or that cup of whatever makes you feel better. And hopefully we can all make it through it in one piece. Godspeed. I will see you guys on the other side of November 3rd. This is Ami Tucker It Out. <laughs>